Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Okay, I have a request. Please don't actually replace that with the dings and just leave in ominous dinging. Because <laughs> it's our final ominous episode dinging. of the season. Or okay, the, so. of the of <laughs> this first part of the season. And I love ominous dinging. Okay. Ominous dinging is the title of your sex tape. It's also the name of my The favorite. next one. My sex tape part two. Yeah. You're not allowed to actually replace any of these noises for this episode. <laughs> this right, this is perfect. Just release the uncut version. <laughs> Let's go. It's fine. It'll be an hour and a half podcast. Nobody cares. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we want to welcome back the incomparable special guest expert, Molly Ceramet, to talk about Charles and Cressida. Yay! Woo. Thanks for being here, Molly. Happy to. Thanks for having me. So Aubrey and I don't really like this play. In fact, it's my least favorite play in the canon. Uh, but Molly thinks it's super interesting and she knows it pretty well. So she is here to change hearts and minds and we're going to let her. Thank God. <laughs> because it, I don't hate this play as actively as you do, Jess, but I really haven't paid a lot of attention to it. And so the fact that we have Molly here to like gush about it for an hour is a real <laughs> relief, I think. It's, yeah. it's good for both of us. It's, so. it's a challenge, but I'm up to it. I know you it. are. I'm, I'm <laughs> excited for it. All right. Also, listeners, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays, particularly on one of the ones that maybe not everybody likes very much, um, we would love to talk to you about it on a future episode. So just email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas. So thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. So uh, you might remember Molly from our Q1 Hamlet episode some number of weeks ago. That was the season, wasn't it? September? Yes. Yes. Great. Time. Yes. <laughs> time it's been is a, a long concept. time since then. Wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah I've lived a lifetime. <laughs> um, so you might, you might remember Molly, but uh, if you're new or if you don't remember Molly, Molly, do you want to briefly reintroduce yourself? Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Molly Seremet. Uh I know these two jokers from uh, <laughs> <laughs> being at the Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance Graduate Program. Currently, I am an actor and a director and a devised theater maker, and I also teach. Uh, so that's how I spend most of my time. Uh, and I really do like Troilus and Cressida, so I'm excited to be here today. Yay. Yeah. I love awesome. it. Well, so every week, what we do here on this podcast is we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Banana Hammock Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 <laughs> yeah. level. I don't, did I write that? Is that me? Or did, did you do I that? I sure as shit didn't. All right. <laughs> I, have to, I have to interject. Do you know what they call a banana hammock in the UK? Oh, God, no. But I bet it's good. No. It's really good. They call them budgie smugglers. Oh, I did As in know tiny that. little birds. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, <laughs> somewhere out there, Robbie Hand just like his brain did a thing. <laughs> I don't think he listens, but shout out to everyone who knows Robbie Hand. <laughs> just tag oh, wow. this episode, Budgie Smugglers, <laughs> and I bet you'll get a whole new crowd. So uh, at this 101 level is all the introductory stuff, everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other really cool stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else, like our opinions mm -hmm. and this week, Molly's opinions. Before that, though, it is time for the rhetorical device of the week. Because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices help us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. 
Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So this week, I get to say, draw a card, potato finger. <laughs> potato finger. Sick burn, Molly. Sick burn. You can blame Thersites. Right. <laughs> He's got burns for everybody. That dude he is really savage. He does. Yeah. Wait. All right. Isn't Thersites a woman? No. no. Who's? I mean, it can be played by a woman, I suppose. But who's, no. who's, who am I thinking of? Who's Achilles' mom? That Thetis. one lady. Thetis. 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 Which is sort of like Thersites, in that it's with the, if a demigoddess of the sea is yeah. like a disillusioned scallywag of a soldier, then yes, totally. Okay, Molly, tell okay. me where to stop. Here we go. Stop. Ooh, okay. This week, the rhetorical device in their ever shrinking packet is synecdoche. <gasps> I love synecdoche. Ooh. Yeah, synecdoche, S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E, a lovely Greek word, uh, synecdoche. It means representing the whole through one of its parts. Whole, W-H-O-L-E, you perverts, the whole through one of its parts. Uh, so, for instance, in Macbeth, take thy face hence. Face being the part to represent all of you because you cannot uh, unless you are John Travolta or Nicolas Cage you cannot <laughs> remove your face and only take that away everything else has to go with your face so again synecdoche representing the whole through one of its parts cool Ta-da! that's ooh, a good one ooh can I say it this time can I do this part because I never get to do this part because it's always me can I do it totally <gasps> <laughs> dingly dingly ding it's now time for a Burbage break with Master, Master, Master Ceramit. So today I want to talk about tents in Troilus and Cressida. And here I mean the thing that you go camping in, not the way that you conjugate verbs. Please do not let my Pittsburgh accent deceive you. Tents, ladies and gentlemen. And I think that I want to talk about tents because frankly, Shakespeare really wanted to talk about tents in this play. According to open source Shakespeare, Shakespeare uses the word tent or some variant of it 33 times in the course of the play. This, of course, carries on the tradition started by Homer's Iliad, where, of course, tents appear frequently inside of that epic poem structure. In a way, though, I want to suggest that for Shakespeare, keeping so many of these geographical kinds of references alive inside of an early modern play is a really specific authorial choice that's meant to remind us that this is a play about privacy, secrecy, and a really specific and targeted kind of betrayal, uh, that although this takes place in the context of a war play, what this play is actually about are person-to-person betrayals. And the tent and the space that it conjures helps activate that. Specifically, I want to mention the way that Shakespeare uses the notion of the tent in literal and metaphoric ways to mark shifts between public and private that are key to understanding how Troilus and Cressida works as a play. So inside of this play, shifts between interior and exterior space are noted clearly in in many stage directions, and they help shape the landscape and the terrain of the play in important ways. In general terms, this play happens inside of four major we could call them like geographic zones. We've got the inside of palaces and private homes, the battlefield, at the threshold of tents, and then inside the interior space of the tent, which we generally don't see staged in this play, but we hear a lot about what goes on when the tent flap is closed. These shifts are also marked. I know, it's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Tent flap. These shifts are marked by a great deal of possessive language as well. So we hear characters talk about my tent, his tent, the Greeks' tents, etc. at the door of the tent that help tie ownership to geographical location and help us understand that the soldiers in this play are rationalizing and processing their displacedness inside of a very long, very stultifying, in a lot of ways, very boring war. So in turn... The hidden interiority of these tents conceals the nature of some of the play's more hotly contested relationships, namely Cressida's, quote, 
infidelity to Troilus once she has been given to the Greeks and particularly to um, the Grecian Diomed, as well as the exact nature of how Achilles and his best friend Patroclus spend their time inside their tent and perhaps inside the bed inside the tent. So in a way, we might consider that the use of tents in this play can have modern impact if we think about it in terms of psychogeography. Uh, as a concept, psychogeography was defined in 1955 by Guy Debord, who's a Marxist theorist and a founding member of the Situationist International, which is super cool and pretty fascinating uh, if you're into that sort of thing. And Debord defines psychogeography as, quote, the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organized or not, on the emotions and behavior of individuals. So what I want to suggest is that because this is a play where characters are continually trying to carve out private space inside of what is perhaps the most public arena, and that is the battlefield, these tents become not just important to understanding the landscape of this play, but critical to understanding what kinds of secrets these characters are carrying around with them. Uh, in a way, it's kind of awesome that synecdoche is the rhetorical device of the week because there there is a there is a way in which tents become read as synonymous with the person who owns them, and that being in someone's tent represents a kind of betrayal, uh, no matter what the nature of the action happening that we don't get to see is. Um, you know, in a way, these physical tents are almost metonymic for the private desires of characters, whether that's for intimacy or closeness or privacy or some kind of subversion. The structure of the tent activates the space of the individual inside of the landscape of the war. And I think that it reminds us more effectively than any of Shakespeare's other war plays that battle and conflict are intensely personal and that the losses that are suffered in war exist on an individual and not just a national or a global level. And to me, that's what this play does so, so well and why it's really worth paying attention to uh, and giving it some love. I love your brain. Oh, my God. I love your brain. Your brain is so <laughs> It's hot. pretty weird in there. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty cool that we ended up with synecdoche today because metonymy right? is kind of the sister device yeah. to synecdoche. And you're talking about metonymic spaces. Um, yeah. That's kind of cool. Well, it's thank you for that. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I have. I do the outro. Ding, 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 ding. And Jess, did you want to do the? That was your burbage break with Master, Master, Master Serenit. Moving on, we're about to jump into the summary-ish portion of uh, our show. We always start with a five-word unhelpful title. I cheated a teeny weeny bit for my own this week because mine is six words, but mine is believe women, or at least Cassandra. This would be a much shorter play. It would. <laughs> People it would. just fucking listened to the prophetess. Yeah, just I listen mean, to the women in this play. I feel like it would shorten the war by... I'm saying. You know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe avoid the war entirely. Uh, believe all the women. Yeah, cool. So my five-word title is Achilles is the Gay Bay. <laughs> true. I like it. It's true. <laughs> And mine is Cressida had no choice, yo. I feel like we we each have told a different story with our <laughs> titles. And that tells you just how goddamn big this play is. Yeah. And that's the real beauty of this play, I think, is that there are a ton of different plays hiding in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should they all exist in one text at the same time? Maybe not. No. <laughs> but you can... You can go on this sort of choose-your-own-adventure quest yeah. and follow what you like. All right, so let's talk some Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones, which <laughs> when we're talking about the fucking Trojan War happens to be almost everyone. <laughs> um, so let's just, let's kick it off. Uh, Team Troy, the Trojans, who do we have We've got that side? We've got Priam, who's the king of Troy. Okay. Priam has a shit ton of children. And only some of them are in this summary, but here we go. We've got Cassandra, <laughs> who's a prophetess, and then Hector, Troilus, Paris, and Andromache, who is Hector's wife? No. Yes. Yes. Yes, she is. Yeah. Okay. 
So she's yeah. Priam's daughter-in-law, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Got it. Yes. Then we have Aeneas, which you really need to pronounce carefully, Aeneas, <laughs> um, who is a commander and a leader of Troy. There's Antinor, who's another commander. Then we have Calchas, who is a Trojan priest who is taking part with the Greeks. Then we have Cressida, who's Calchas's daughter. She's kind of important. And then there's Pandarus, who is Cressida's naughty mocking uncle and is totally a dirty old man. Real. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving on over to the Greeks. We've got Agamemnon, who is the king of the Greeks and leader of the Greek invasion. We have Achilles, who's a prince and I guess a demigod. What's the no, his mom was a demigod. So yes. he's like quarter god. I don't know what the Greek prefix is <laughs> for that. I don't know how pedigree works there. But that's what he is. And he's played by Brad Pitt always. Moving on. <laughs> and then there's Ajax, who is also a prince. But he's like a big, dumb, stupid prince. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. And then we have Diomedes, who is also a prince. <laughs> then we have Nestor, who's a wise, old, error, and <laughs> talkative prince. Lots of princes from Greece. Yeah. And then there's Ulysses, who's the king of Ithaca. Uh, In some editions, the character is referred to as Odysseus. Same dude, still talks the length of a Bible. So true. We also have Menelaus, who's the king of Sparta, and he is Agamemnon's brother. And we have Helen. Yes, that Helen, who's Menelaus's wife, uh, but who's been uh, shacking up with Paris because she ran away with him and, and they started a war together. A big one. And then my favorite is Thersites, who's a deformed and scurrilous low-class fool. For the second half of the play, for all intents and purposes, he's kind of the narrator. All right. And to wrap things up, oh, my God. Oh, this it's so hot. Sorry. Sorry. This is so hot. Whoa. So appropriate. Whoa, it's hot. Oh, my God. It's yeah. so Even who you're about to talk about. Patroclus is really hot. And yeah. so is their love. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I know yeah. you're talking about tea, but yes. they're hot, Sorry. Too. My teapot. The handle is, it's, it's. It got hot underneath this tea cozy. Um, so you guys said it. It's Patroclus who is hitting it with Achilles and they're super gay for each other and it's beautiful. Um, and one or both of them dies. I forget. I haven't read or seen this play in like five years. Patroclus dies. Great. Cool. Which is what causes Achilles to kill Hector. Sure. Yeah. And Spoilers. Then later, well, you know. Achilles dies. I mean, we all know the story, but yeah. And then later, Achilles <laughs> has a heel problem. Yeah. And- guys like yeah. but not in this play no not in this yeah. play okay and also because of his mother right mm-hmm. right it's mm-hmm. fault because she dips him in yeah. the, the ocean the river i don't remember and he's invincible except for the place where she's holding him which is his heel all right so that was uh that was team troy and team greece let's talk about other things say your words jess i'm sorry yeah why why is this play so goddamn popular molly well i mean emphatically it is not true um, <laughs> And in fact, most Shakespeare people that you encounter will make a, a, a habit or a show out of deriding this as a really bad play. Uh, and I have to say that I don't a thousand percent disagree with you. Uh, because in practical terms, Troilus and Cressida really wants to be cut. It does not want to be performed in all of its 3,700 line glory. <sighs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say that again cut this play that's like there is what it's second to hamlet and lear it's gigantic and maybe cymbeline maybe so it's gigantic um and as you know from the dramatis personae there are so many characters to keep hold of and it's always important to know who's playing for which team except that shifts because (laughs) people in this play change loyalties um however do not let that stop you from excavating this play because I, I firmly believe that there's there are multiple really, really powerful 90 to 120 to maybe 150 minute plays hiding in there. You just have to cut it down to size. You know, Ulysses has like a three page monologue. Cut that shit. Just trim it, right? And I want to suggest that There are a couple of things that this play does better than any other play in the canon. That's right. I said it. Um, And one of those things is kind of an odd one. But I think that what Troilus and Cressida does really well is provides an opportunity to explore and to stage what the female gaze 
looks like on stage. You know, Shakespeare doesn't just invite this in Troilus and Cressida, but actually literally calls for it. One of the more famous scenes in this play is uh, Act 1, Scene 2, when Cressida and Pandarus stand and watch all the soldiers parade past them. And Cressida and Pandarus talk about their physical attributes and their prowess in battle and literally discuss who's hotter, who's smarter, who's braver. While the men are silent, they parade past to the throngs of people. And Cressida tells us all about them. Granted, Pandora's is kind of coaxing our long, but it's a rare opportunity to hear what women think about men and to sort of stage what it looks like when men are literally on parade for consumption by the female gaze. And I think that that's really interesting. I think that ethically there are problems there, but um, as y'all mentioned in your measure for measure episode, you know, I think John Harrell's advice here is incredibly useful. Stage the problem, don't stage the solution. And this play offers an opportunity to sort of inhabit Cressida's worldview, which is weird and fucked up, but it's really interesting. Kind of on that same vein, I think that this play really unpacks the notion of consent in fascinating ways. And perhaps especially because we're living in this Me Too moment, this play should totally be on your radar. Quite often for people who have not encountered this play in performance or reading it, but only through uh, secondhand knowledge, the thing that they think they know is that Cressida is a whore. That is entirely untrue. Um, and I say that categorically because she is first given to Troilus and then taken away and given to the Greeks in exchange for the release of Antinor. And further, that whole exchange goes down because Cressida's father, who is living with the Greeks, says it would be a good idea. So Cressida is literally passed from hand to hand, first by Pandarus, then through Calchas to Diomed and to the Greeks in general. This is, a, this is a woman in the world of this play whose agency is continually taken away from her. And we watch her grapple with that. So this play stages what happens when a woman is trying to operate inside of all of these men's worlds that she finds herself in. Her actions aren't always noble. They aren't always pleasant. They aren't always easy to digest. But how interesting is that, particularly in the moment that we find ourselves in? And in a way, I think that this play, the thing that I love about Troilus and Cressida is how shockingly modern it feels in its cynicism towards these questions. Unlike Measure for Measure, where we see Isabella struggle and then not speak, we hear a lot from Cressida. We hear a lot about how she's processing what is happening to her and how she is making a choice to survive, even when the optics of that choice look icky. And I think that that's just incredibly fascinating. And one of the things that this play is so superior at doing. Molly, do you know much about the textual history of the, of the play? I know a little. You probably know more. I certainly do not. Um, I So I just... 3,700 lines is a lot. Yeah. Um, and I was I was interested. I was like, I think that's like third or fourth longest. So I went to my Shakespeare yeah. app to like look because it always says. Yeah. And the Shakespeare yeah. app says 2,900 lines, which I think uh, is wrong. I think it's clearly it wrong. Might. But I'm I'm interested where that discrepancy comes from. I wonder if it's a lineation, yeah. like a prose verse issue or if it's. Could be. If you this know play does exist. It exists in two quartos, and I don't really know what the difference between the quartos is, okay. but it was also registered with the Stationers Registry, right. I think about six years before the first quarto edition came out. Uh -huh. And then in terms of its placement in the first folio, Oh, God, it's that's so interesting. Really I crazy. love it so much. <laughs> yeah, tell so, the story. So Troilus and Cressida is included in the first folio, but you wouldn't know that from the title page because, or from the table of contents, because it has been omitted 
from the table of contents. And in fact, and I think this is um, so perfect given the conversation that we're having about this weird ass play, um, it sits in its placement within the first folio, it sits right in between tragedy and history. It's, it's kind of in this nothing place, which is perfect given that this play kind of has no genre <laughs> in that it is all of the genres. Yeah. It is also not paginated inside of the first folio. And I think I remember hearing that there is some conversation about it not being printed by the same printer as the yeah. rest of the folio. Yeah, um, that they, maybe it was a last minute edition or something. Yeah, they got the right super late in the process. Okay. Like they Weird. had already started printing yeah. the folio when they finally secured the the. I mean, it wasn't copyright, but copyright, right? You know, and and they inserted it. So yeah, I think they had because it's um, <sighs> William and Isaac Jaggard are the printers okay. of the folio, along with. Edward Aldi and somebody blunt, maybe um, there was like, okay. there were six people involved in printing because this was such a mm -hmm. huge, massive undertaking of the of the folio. Yeah. And so when they got Troilus and Cressida, they outsourced it to someone who wasn't quite as busy. Um, yeah. And it. Yeah. So it's it's like it's a whole that's I mean, maybe an episode in itself. And I love that we're talking sure. about it because this is like my jam. Yeah, it's a yeah. weird thing. It's a weird play. It's a weird process of how it got included in the folio yeah. and everything is weird and, and it's all weird. Actually, even inside of its Cordo editions, the the title pages are really different. One of them says that it was performed. And I think it says it was performed at the inns of court or performed by the king's men or something. And the other title page suggests that it wasn't performed at all, that it was, in fact, like a play written to be read. Oh, which like is closet sort drama? of. Yeah, which is sort of bonkers and crazy. And don't quote me on that because it's been a long time since I I've mean, looked at the title pages. But I'm going to Ebo right now. So yeah, <laughs> but there is a there is a difference in how this play was packaged whether that was in Cordo yeah. or inside of the first folio. And I think that if nothing else, what that suggests is that nobody has known what to do with this play for a very long time. And that's interesting. And perhaps a reason to invest some interest in it rather than to put it on the shelf. Yeah. So, um, so I'm looking at the two Cordos right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were both printed by the same guy, George Eld. For the booksellers R. Bonian and H. Wally to be sold at the Spread Eagle in Paul's Churchyard. <laughs> Some great names. Yeah. Did yeah, you yeah. say Boney Boney Man? Is that what you said? Bonian. Or maybe Bonian. Still funny. Yeah. <laughs> no, we like Bonian. Bonian is better. Yeah. Always. Um, Always. And they're both 1609, <laughs> which is like extra weird. Yeah, um, like there's no there's no date. So anyway, the first one is the famous history of Troilus and Cressid excellently expressing the beginning of their loves with the conceited wooing of Pandarus, Prince of Lycia, Lycia, written by mm -hmm. William Shakespeare. Uh, and the other one is the history of Troilus and Cressida as it was acted by the King's Majesty's servants at the Globe, written by William Shakespeare. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah, that's really interesting. It asks interesting questions about what this play was for, mm -hmm. which I think are maybe useful in what we think about mm -hmm. what we can do with it now. Well, before we even got to the summary, we sort of went into like stuff about the play, <laughs> but I guess yeah. maybe we should do a summary yeah. now. Ding, 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 ominous dinging. It's summary time. Alrighty. So we will now summarize Troilus and Cressida for you in a segment that this week we're calling the surprise inside the Trojan horse is this summary. <laughs> No? Anyone? Sure. I'll allow it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> I'll allow it. I mean, it's a bit like, because it's about the Trojan War, right? right. And like yeah. the thing yeah. that everybody knows is like the Trojan horse. Is it better if I explain why this is funny? No. <laughs> Never. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm ready with the timer. Rule number one of telling a joke. Don't explain <laughs> Don't the joke. Don't explain it. I think it's funny to explain jokes. All right. Whatever. <laughs> I trust you both to still love me a little bit when we're done. <laughs> Molly, whenever you're ready, take it away. Yep. Okay. Yep. Act one. Troilus won't go out and fight until he gets an answer from Cressida. 
Cressida's uncle Pandarus has basically been acting as Troilus's hype man until Cressida admits that she's in love with Troilus. She does eventually admit it, but she also wants to be wooed like a lady. In the Greek camp, Achilles also doesn't want to fight because he'd rather hang around with his boo, Patroclus. Hector sends a messenger to the Greek camp to offer a one-on-one challenge to any Greek man enough to try. Nestor and Agamemnon know that Achilles is the best choice, but Trixie Ulysses suggests they rig the lottery to choose Ajax as the champion instead, figuring that the wound to Achilles' pride will make him take up Hector's challenge instead. Ajax gets into a battle of wits with Thersites that he can't possibly win because he a bonehead. The lottery for the Greek champion happens, and Achilles is predictably jealous of Ajax. Back in Troy, Priam and his sons argue over what to do with Helen. Uh, In other words, if they give her back to the Greeks, all of this could be over. Troilus argues that it's hypocritical to approve of her kidnapping that started the war and then give her back, and everybody eventually agrees. Cassandra comes through predicting doom and gloom, but nobody listens to her. They ultimately decide to keep Helen because clearly she's not a person anymore. She's just an object to be tossed between camps when it suits them. Uh, Over on the Greek side, Ulysses uses all of his powers of manipulation to really stick it to Achilles about losing that lottery to the amazing Ajax. Act three, Pandarus makes excuses for Troilus to Paris and Helen for ditching their dinner plans, but they're cool with it because they know it means Troilus will be with Cressida. Troilus and Cressida finally get together in Pandarus's orchard. They express their love. They swear undying loyalty. They smooch. Then they go into Pandarus's house and seal the deal. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Meanwhile, Calchas, Cressida's dad, and a traitor to Troy uses her as a bargaining chip in a prisoner exchange with the Trojans. And Achilles mopes even more about this whole Hector challenge thing. Diomedes arrives in Troy to negotiate the exchange of Antenor, a Greek prisoner, and Cressida. He wants to switch Antenor for Cressida. Got it. Okay. Cressida and Troilus get a rather rude post-coil awakening when, when Aeneas appears to take Cressida to the Greeks. Paris feels bad that this is happening to his brother. Good God. Uh, but he won't stop it. Neither does Troilus because reasons. Before Cressida goes, she and Troilus exchange a glove and a sleeve as proof of their fidelity to each other. Cressida is handed over to Diomedes, who leads her to the Greek camp just as the fight between Hector and Ajax is about to begin. All the Greek generals insist on kissing Cressida, and it's super gross, so they start to pass her around until Cressida gets too uppity and sassy, at which point they predictably call her a whore instead, and it's gross. Because men, am I right? It's gross. Gross, gross, gross. Men are trash. All men are trash. Hector and Ajax fight, but there's no clear winner. Then Hector goes to feast with the Greek generals, and Troilus convinces Ulysses to take him to Calchas's tent, where Cressida and Diomedes are. Act 5. Achilles vows to kill Hector. Thersites calls him a homo and then gives him a letter from Trojan queen Hecuba about her daughter Polyxena, who Achilles is kind of in love with, question mark. Thersites then roasts the rest of the Greek leaders. Meanwhile, Ulysses and Troilus are still spying on Diomedes and Cressida, and Thersites is spying on them. Troilus sees Cressida acquiescing to Diomedes, uh, example being nice to him in order to survive, uh, and is sure she's been unfaithful. Cressida tries to get the token back, but Diomedes insists on keeping it and wearing it in his helmet to taunt Troilus. Troilus goes off in a huff, and Cressida is sad because she knows she has to give up Troilus completely. Back in Troy, Cassandra, along with all of the other Trojan women, again predicts death and destruction, and again, no one listens to her. The fighting finally starts. Troilus fights Diomedes and Ajax. Hector kills Patroclus. Achilles kills Hector and then drags his body around tied to the tail of his horse. Troilus vows revenge and says mean words to Pandarus, who then curses the audience to venereal disease. The end. Oh, Jesus. Oh, and one, I while you were reading Act 5, I realized I left out a crucial portion of that summary, which is that Cressida for some reason, I forget why, gives Diomedes the token she got from Troilus. <laughs> I jumped yeah. I jumped there saying she's doing what he wants. She gives him a token and then tries to get that same, the sleeve back and Diomedes won't give it back. Yeah. So I just, I forgot to stick that in there. Sorry, so I was writing kind of fast. Diomed is her guardian right. and, and he basically makes her give it to him. Yeah. And she does because frankly, what will happen if she doesn't? Right. What choice does she have? Yeah. Yeah. I just realized I forgot to say that that is what she gives is the sleeve that she got from Troilus, which is, of course, why he flies off the handle. Right. So there it is. So it's tips and tidbits time. So we already gave you some of that before the summary. Um, Molly, tell us more things. 
Well, we talked a lot about the text, so you've got you've got a good handle on the scholarly perspective. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about production. In terms of a production perspective, I think that maybe the most interesting thing about this play is that it features love triangles for days. And in a way, these relationships become mirrors of each other. So, you know, we've got Troilus and Cressida. We also have Paris and Helen and Patroclus and Achilles. And then each of those relationships has their respective interlopers or intermediaries. So we've got Diomed and Pandarus interfering with Troilus and Cressida. We've got Menelaus, perhaps rightly so, interfering with Paris and Helen. And then in terms of Patroclus and Achilles, we've got Ulysses and Polyxena, even though Polyxena isn't a character in this play, we do hear from her in the form of a letter. And so I think it's really interesting when you're conceptualizing a production of this play to think about what you do with all of those mirrors. Do you leverage their similarities or do you mine for the differences in them? And I think that's just incredibly interesting. This is a play that ostensibly is a war play, but is actually far more personal and intimate than that. It lives and dies in how these relationships function. And then in a larger context, how those relationships are perceived and responded to from the outside. On the one hand, Achilles and Patroclus are they're in a relationship with each other, whether that relationship is a deep friendship or whether they're lovers. You, there's evidence on both sides and scholarship that supports either reading. But you can't ignore the fact that that is a big part of the reason why Achilles isn't fighting, because he's having fun with Patroclus. But also, he has also promised Polyxena's mother, uh, Greek queen Hecuba, that, uh, I'm sorry, not yeah, the you're right. Queen. It's Hecuba, yeah. or yeah, the Trojan queen. The Hecuba. Trojan queen Hecuba, that he won't fight because some of her kinsmen will die in the battle. And Achilles is supposed to marry Polyxena, who also dies during the course of the war, question mark. You know, so so Achilles is a character who is really torn between sides, torn between factions, torn between obligations in a not so dissimilar way that Cressida finds herself. You know, so these relationships are incredibly interesting and they have so much overlap and so much impact on each other's timelines that I think that it makes this play incredibly fascinating. Kind of along those same lines, one thing that this play does extraordinarily well, I think, is exists to be a cynical commentary on the nature of war and the nature of valor in and of itself. And as I said before, I think that's one of the reasons why this play is so powerful inside of modern interpretations. You will frequently see the encounter this play in performance inside of a modern setting, whether that is transported to a war or a conflict that is that is historical or currently going on, uh, or whether it is an imagining of what this looks like in our current year. One of the more famous examples of this is the 2012 production that the uh, Worcester group did as a co-production with the RSC, uh, which was kind of interesting in that, and I might have this backwards, but the American actors played either the Greeks or the Trojans and the RSC actors played the other. So inside of the casting and inside of the concept, they were staging this war and they didn't rehearse together. Oh, what? So inside of their rehearsal practice, I don't know if it was for the whole time or when they came together, um, but they did maintain some separate rehearsals so that they actually were staging a collision between different styles and the design, the aesthetic supported that. There was no attempt to unify the production. Instead, it was really about staging difference. The Public Theater in New York just did Trillis and Cressida as part of their Shakespeare in the Park series in 2016. It was, I believe, a contemporary setting. You see this a lot with Trillis and Cressida, and I think that's partially because it opens up an avenue to explore the way that war makes us feel hopeless, 
makes us feel cynical, makes us question what bravery and valor looks like. That is not to take anything away, of course, from people who are engaged in conflict and who are fighting wars, but it is a way of sort of questioning what the overarching ethos is of why we fight these wars in the first place, right? And people being pawns inside of a larger political game. And I think that this play is really exceptional because it doesn't go looking for heroes. It sort of lives in its discomfort, lives in these icky moments where people don't do the right thing or cannot bring themselves to do anything that isn't selfish. And that's really human in a way that for me plays like Henry V never really touch, Mm. you know? Mm. This is a this is a war play that doesn't want to be at war. Yeah. And that's pretty fascinating. That's where my brain lives on this play in production. You know, there's also just some some truly wonderful opportunities. Like by the time we get to act five of the play, there hasn't been a single battle or conflict. And by the time the fighting finally starts, the first the opening salvo. Like the first time we see physical conflict is when Hector and Ajax fight Mm -hmm. and the fight begins and everybody on stage is gathered to watch it and they're commenting on it. But very quickly in the fight, Hector and Ajax realize that they're cousins. Right. Yeah. And so they stop fighting because, well, we don't want to fight each other. We're related. (laughs) And then they all go back to the tents for a party. (laughs) Like, in a way, the play is this sort of epic buildup where where we're like getting ready to see heroes be heroes. And then they don't. They never do. And that is, rather than being a, a hitch in this play's giddy up, I think that's actually what this play is about. Mm-hmm. It, Lots it, of it, hype and just no yeah. follow through almost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not about trying to stage classical heroes being classically heroic. It's pretty ridiculous. And Thersites tells us that. Thersites is commenting on these fights and his language is really spicy, you know, mm-hmm. and he's kind of gross, but he talks about how these idiots are clapper clawing one another and how they're, they're just morons. They don't even know what they're fighting for. And that, I don't know, there's something about that that deep level of self-awareness and deeply cynical perspective that I think is really fascinating. And I think for that reason, this play deserves a little more attention and deserves to at least be treated with consideration. You know, so. you're right. The only other production aside from the ASC production mm-hmm. of Trollis and Cressida that I saw was uh, staged where they cast uh, like American white American actors and also actors of Middle Eastern descent. And they staged like an Iraq war type of type of thing. And so, yeah, it was very, very modern. And the Thersites character was like this cracked out, like literally cracked out. He was like the American side's sort of drug dealer and smuggler. So that's how he knew everybody. Uh, But he was like on one the whole time. Yeah, it it does. It's it feels very relevant to pr- pretty much every conflict yeah. all over the world, you know, all the time. Sadly, if you, if you do go down a production history rabbit hole on this play, um, yeah. I do suggest that you don't do it on your work computer. <laughs> um, oh, okay. because particularly in terms of um, visual aesthetic and costuming, this play invites a lot of bold choices. Uh, one of the more famous productions dressed panderous with a giant phallus on the outside of his costume. Okay. Um, Like um, (laughs) a grotesque phallus, right? Predictably, Helen is quite often staged in just almost no clothes, right? Sometimes she's sort of looks like a playboy, playmate kind of woman, right? That is another thing that does tend to happen. And I think because because we want this play to, because we we feel like this play is so modern, that starts to happen. This happens, of course, with Patroclus and Achilles as well. Patroclus has been staged as a as a drag queen or mm-hmm. as a as a parody, maybe, of female impersonation, uh, with mixed levels of success, I think. But 
that I think speaks to the way that this play just feels so contemporary and feels like those options are available to us in a way that maybe we wouldn't do with, I don't know, Richard three. Well, that's contemporary in its own way, I guess. But but it is pretty fascinating to see what what choices get made with this crazy, crazy I mean, play. Shout out yeah. to the best choice ever made, which is shirtless Greg Phelps as Troilus at the ASC <laughs> in 2013 with that luxurious, long, flowing <laughs> hair, that mane. Mm. It's, it's, Hi, yep. Greg. We know you're listening. Yeah. What, what up, Greg? I like your hair <laughs> that you don't have anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's good hair. <laughs> I mean, he still has hair, just his, good his hair. less hair. Yeah. It's shorter hair now. Yeah, it's not he a He-Man off. main yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He-Man, I think, yeah. is exactly the avatar for what they were going for with Troilus that time. It worked. Yeah. It was like a, a leather strap across yeah. his chest. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that great <laughs> publicity awesome. photo where he's just covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's a good yeah. picture. It's a good good, yeah. good picture. Fun. Um, I mean, by the time Troilus and Diomed do fight with each other, it it is a pretty great scene. Mm-hmm. Like they are they are shit talking each other, they are taunting each other. Diomed runs away, <laughs> which is just to me is just deeply satisfying <laughs> that he's all talk, and it's it's just so interesting. But then it's a nice contrast when Achilles goes berserk. And Achilles doesn't kill Hector nobly. Um, Hector is unarmed. He has taken his armor off. And Achilles rolls in with his Myrmidons. That's his his, like private army of fearsome fighters. And they kill Hector when he is not inside of battle. And it's ugly. And it's unethical. I mean, this is the Henry V kill all the prisoners moment where everyone kind of looks at it and says, whoa, one step too far. And it's because Hector has killed Patroclus. That is the last straw for Achilles. And he does the thing that everybody has been saying he can do so well, but he doesn't do it nobly. And so he's in the play, he becomes really shaded by that, Mm -hmm. by the fact that he does the thing, but not in the appropriate, honorable way. Right. Not in the one-on-one man-to-man combat challenge kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. He breaks the rules of war, brings in his, his own army and decimates Hector. And it's so tragic and so, you know, so upsetting in ways that I think are really relatable doing the right thing for all the wrong reasons. Okay, so the game this week is uh, Line Roulette. It's This is a game that you know, we all know, we love it. It's our favorite game. So it's, you know, we've got Molly here. She's going to, I'm going to roll some dice. And yep. she's going to grab her copy of the Arden Three Troyes and Cressida. There it is. And I have to say that this could be hilarious because I only really know this play in performance uh, in a cut version, like a 90 minute cut. So odds are very good that I will not even recognize the line that I am assigned. So enjoy this. Here we go. All righty. All righty. So Molly, we've got act four. Okay. And we've got scene. uh, Do we have a scene five? Yes. Okay. Oh, and it's a Ulysses scene. Okay. (laughs) And then how about, do we have a line 41? We must because it's Ulysses. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes we do let me see cool. what it is you said 41 41 <laughs> okay this is actually kind of interesting so this is inside of the scene when Cressida has come to the Greek camp and all of the dudes want her to kiss them in this Gross. like sort of very public display of subjugation and so the line 41 is Menelaus uh, who is the one guy aside from Ulysses that Cressida doesn't kiss? And Menelaus's response to her is, "I'll give you boot. I'll give you three for one." Ooh, all right. Um, Ooh, good line. I'll give you three for one. So, okay, I'm ready. Take it away. Go. Yeah. So, I think what's interesting about this line is that it's introducing gambling language. So, um, the the he's talking about odds and he's talking about um, sort of uh, 
I don't, I don't exactly know what the phrase means and I'm not going to waste time looking at the footnote, but, but it is introducing this language of wagering and gambling and sort of, um, the idea of an ante or the stakes. And I think for a play that is about a war that never really gets fought until it is, um, until it becomes a bloodbath, I think that's so interesting. And I think that in a way, what all of the men in this play are doing is playing this game that is a war. And it's not until it's too late that it becomes real. And inside of that, we see characters who are female or characters who are like sort of soft targets in other ways, like Patroclus, become the casualties of this shitty game that the men are playing. And so I think in this case, hearing Menelaus the cuckold, like so desperate for Cressida to pay attention to him and introducing this language really does encapsulate the theme of this play. Nice. Boom. A minute exactly. (laughs) You're so good at this. This is why we have you on. See, this is why we have. Yeah, I was just gonna say this is why we have you on for this play, especially. Oh my god. All righty. So moving on to some corrections. Look at all these corrections we have. It's it's not all of them. It's just one. You just just go with (laughs) it. Calm down. We say a lot of things on this podcast. Sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong because we're Aubrey and we're talking out of our butt. So it only seems right to issue corrections as necessary. So this one's on me. Kind of. I will say this with a caveat. Kind of. So one of our Twitter followers brought it to my attention that King Lear, that's the quote unquote historical Lear, L-E-I-R, not L-E-A-R of Shakespeare, the inspiration for Shakespeare's Lear, was the most ancient king. I had said at some point, I was like musing, I was like, I think Cymbeline is, if we're looking at a very long timeline of British kings, I think Cymbeline is like the first one on that timeline for Shakespeare's sort of historical figures. Um, He says, uh, no, King Lear was actually like 8th century BC instead of, you know, Cymbeline, a.k.a. Cunabellan, who this is based on in like the 1st century AD. So I double-checked that. Turns out that the legend of King Lear was published um, by in Geoffrey of Monmouth's quote-unquote pseudo-historical account of Britain, meaning that he embellished a bit, or maybe a lot, not really sure. So if he actually existed, Lear's reign would have predated Cymbeline's, but we can't verify that. So Cunabellan or Cymbeline from the Iron Age, first century AD, was not necessarily the earliest king Shakespeare wrote about. King Lear was, if he was real, which we don't know. Cool. So... That's a sort of half-assed correction, but I did want to, maybe it's more of a clarification than a correction, I suppose, because I learned something new. I didn't know that. I really just went to check so I could write some notes down for this. And then I was like, wait, what? Pseudo-historical legend? Hmm. All righty. Shakes bubble gossip time. It's gossip. All right. So I've been sitting on this for, I, it feels like a long time, but I think it's only actually been a couple of weeks. Um, so you listeners, if you've been listening since the beginning-ish, um, you might remember our friend Katie Osborne, who was our guest expert. She was our first guest expert. Yeah, she was our first yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, for... And she actually played Cressida in the production of Trailers and Cressida that I directed. And she That's was so right. beautiful she that I just so... needed to interrupt and say that. Yeah, that is. I love that you, Katie. Production was great. <laughs> And she was great in it. So she she was our guest expert for Titus Andronicus. Uh, she's getting married. And we are throwing her. And when I say we, I mean I. <laughs> I have made this happen. Katie Osborne is getting the world's actual best bachelorette party ever. So it's let me so tell good. you about it, y'all. Um, some number of weeks ago, which I think was like two or three, Katie and I were chatting about the lack of plans for a bachelorette party and how we didn't just want to get together and drink and have a rager 36 hours before she got married because that's a bad idea. Like nobody needs to be hung over uh, <laughs> at a wedding. That's that's a bad idea. And we were like, you know, like, what should we do? And Katie was like, you know, I just I just want to do something chill and like, wouldn't it be great if like we could, you know, just like go look at some cool shit like at a museum or something and i was like katie (laughs) do you want to go to the folger for your bachelorette party and she was like i mean sure but like what would we like do they have stuff to and it was like no katie 
for your <laughs> bachelorette party, do you want to go to the Folger and see their shit in like the vaults? Because I know people at the Folger and I can make that happen. And she was like, uh, yes, please. <laughs> so what I did was I sent an email to Owen Williams, uh, who is one of one of the people I know at the Folger. And I said, uh, hey, Owen, this is a weird request, <laughs> but here's the sitch. Like... She's one of my best friends. She's getting married. Her favorite play is Titus. I know that, like, you guys have the world's only surviving copy of the Titus <laughs> Quarto. Like, can we come do the thing? And he was like, hey, yeah, I don't know. Here's a form you need to fill out. But, like, probably. <laughs> so I filled out the form and half an hour Did you later, write Bachelorette Party on I the form? I did. I absolutely <laughs> did. I said, like, this is Amazing. weird. But like bachelorette party and like, you know, we there there are seven master's degrees and a PhD between <laughs> us, like the people who would be yeah. coming. And yeah. like we, you know, we have six degrees in Shakespeare uh, among us. And like the bride's favorite play is Titus. And literally all she wants to see is the first quarter of Titus and a folio. Like that's it. And then like maybe whatever else you guys think is cool. But like, is this yeah. a thing? Can we do the thing? And so like half an hour later, <laughs> this woman, Rachel, emailed me back and she was like, uh, my favorite play is Titus also we'd love to host you guys and i lost yes. my shit like folger shakespeare library coming through for yeah. this most on-brand bachelorette party ever so like we, we have need to, to like take them donuts when we go we do well but it's ha like this is a thing like it's I, so I just, great. I'm so excited. Awesome. And I can't believe they said yes. And then like <laughs> the next day she emailed me back and she was like, hey, also, uh, can we share this with like our social media teams? And I was like, bitch. Yes. If you think I'm not going to be tweeting the shit out of this, like, <laughs> yes, duh. This is such yeah. good PR for you guys. So um, when we come back in January, I'll be able to tell you guys all about that. <laughs> we'll have sort of like That's a awesome. postmortem so on great. this wild bachelorette party at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Friday at, a, at a, an archive. At the, <laughs> at the Folger. So awesome. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. Props to the Folger yeah. for like saying yes sure. to yeah, weird right? requests. Yeah. Like like my canon completion thing and they throw me a little party. Yeah. They're, they want to do like a bachelorette party thing for you. Like way to go Folger for like really so reaching out to the nerds. Yeah. It's Love awesome. It. Um, all right, so more in the Shakes Bubble gossip. Uh, I just found this when I was scrolling through my Twitter feed that uh, Sophie Okonedo has won the Natasha Richardson Best Actress Award for her work as Cleopatra in a production of Antony and Cleopatra in Britain somewhere. Not sure where. Rafe Fiennes also won for <laughs> Antony. So good job, you guys. Doing a good thing, making good work. Mm -hmm. I think that performance is bad. going to be live streaming soon. <gasps> actually. That's exciting. I, I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, it's the National Theater. Oh, awesome. And I think the live stream is coming up. Uh, it's sometime this week. Um, oh, okay. But it will. it's the National Theater, so it will come back again. Uh, so you'll get a chance to see it. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, because yeah. they just won awards for it. So mm -hmm. way to go, mm -hmm. making Antony and Cleopatra arguably a terrible play. Um, worth Not watching. arguably, it is a terrible play. <laughs> it is my but second It's a really wonderful favorite. moment. It does have, see, I'm with Molly on this one. It does have some good moments. It contains one of my favorite lines in the canon, but it's a trash play, so. Fair. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. Okay, what else is going on in this um, world? So I am taking slash have already taken my PhD exams. Today, I have not yet taken it, but by the 3rd, I will have taken it. Uh, I'm taking it on Monday, the 26th. My, my exams, they are happening. This is the culmination of a goddamn year worth of prep. And I am feeling things about it, but it's, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's just very high stakes. Like, yeah. I'm super prepared. It's going to be great, but they are very important 
exams. So, but you know, some of the listeners have sort of been on this journey with me. So I just wanted to throw that out there that this is happening slash has already happened. And uh, (laughs) it was and will be fine. Yes, it so, will. Yeah. We believe in you. Yeah. You are great. And I, you are perfect. What? You can I am, do it. I am perfect. You what? will do it. Yeah. Yep. In When we come back in January, I will let you know whether I passed, which I hope crushed I Crushed it. You totally crushed it. We know. All right. Molly, what do you got? Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to um, a production for any of anybody who's listening in New York City. Uh, Hedge Pig Ensemble Theater. Uh, is uh, just about to mount a production of All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, It's going to be at the Gene Frankel Theater, which is on Bond Street in New York. And some of the people that get name-checked a lot on this podcast, like (laughs) Greg Phelps and Sarah Himes, are starring in that production. Uh, Sarah is playing Helena, and Greg of the long-flowing hair (laughs) Phelps uh, will be playing Parolis. And I think it's extra important to signal boost this production because Hedgepig's mission as a theater company is to elevate the voices of women in classical theater. Yes. And they really do believe that inside of the plays that they select, but also inside of the way that they cast and direct and design. All's Well That Ends Well has an all-female production team. Nice. Which is super awesome. You can check them out on Facebook or I think they have a website as well if you search Hedgepig ensemble theater and that production is going to run december 6th through december 15th uh and i believe it's an equity showcase so check it out if you're in the city and if you're not in the city check them out anyways because they're awesome yeah congratulations and happy opening guys um you're doing my favorite play so keep doing what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) so but molly what about you what are you working on these days my semester at Mary Baldwin is wrapping up. So I've been te- I've been co-teaching dramaturgy with Dr. Carrie Cook, uh, which has been awesome. And we're just about to the finish line. Our students are actually doing podcasts for their final project uh, in the vein of the Hurley Burley Shakespeare show. So we'll certainly let you know how that how that fadge is. Uh, the students are really excited about it. And then next semester, I am prepping to teach three classes at James Madison University, including two sections of theater history, uh, which I'm terrified of, but also really excited about. Uh, And then I'm working towards the SAA conference, Shakespeare Association of America this year. uh, And I'm super excited about my seminar group because we're talking about desire and the non-human, which my practice is... um, I talk about objects and object-oriented ontologies and post-humanism. If that sort of thing is interesting to you, I tweet about it a lot. But that's my SAA group. So I'm writing something new about the the space of Ophelia's grave, which I'm really excited about. Okay, but that's most importantly, at SAA... Uh-uh. You and I are going to room together. It's true. Which is the most important thing. And we're going to network like bosses. Oh, my God. Well, gonna you're going to network like a boss, and I'm going to have introvert panic all over the place. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, but it'll be fine. Hey, listeners, if you're at SAA in April, look all three of us up, and we'll be happy to meet Come you. And find us. Yeah. Um, You'll have to say hello to me, because I'll be hiding in the corner. <laughs> All right, well, let's dick bracket and get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Flaccid dick noise. Okay. Um, <laughs> so upsetting. <laughs> if that's it's flaccid, like. it doesn't even get to make a noise. Yeah, that's what we, I mean, that was the noise of it, like, trying. It was like, <laughs> and then it can't. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, okay. So yep. last last week's matchup was Antiochus from Pericles versus the Duke from Revenger's Tragedy. This was another bit of a landslide. Uh mm. Revenger's Duke moves forward. Antiochus gets booted out. So that's Yeah, cuz apparently we're going. incest doesn't trump murder and aiding and abetting rape. Apparently not. It'll be, Which I guess, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then this week we have no new matchups since it's our last episode before the break. So you just need to stew in uh, the results between Antigus and the Duke. And if you didn't like it, then vote next time. That'll teach you. Yeah. That's all we have to say about that. Yep. I'll like so- life. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is meant. This is to teach the children a lesson. Teach. <laughs> teach the voters. We're giving out civic lessons here. Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Mm. Thanks again to our dearest darling Molly for joining us again, a second time. She's our first repeat guest. Um, We hope that you love her just as much as we do, although maybe not more than we do because I get to love her the most. (laughs) Very proprietary (laughs) about my love. Uh, If you like her brain as much as I do, you can find her on Twitter at Moxie Molly. That's M-O-X-Y-M-O-L-L-Y. We're taking a break now for the holidays so I can get through my exams, but we'll be back next year for the January of shitty plays. And I'm so excited. We cannot wait. (laughs) I love so many of those plays. Like, I can't even control myself how excited I am. I love, like, (laughs) three out of four of them. I don't love any of them. Winter is coming for me real hard in January. It's going to be great. So, it's going to be. I mean, it is going to be great because we're going to get a bunch of guests to help like drag true. me kicking and screaming yeah, through true. it. So it's going to be awesome. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Molly, do you have a favorite quote from this play that'll, that can take us out? Or I certainly do. And of course, it's Cressida. And it's right after she's learned that she's going to be taken to the Greeks. And she says, why tell you me of moderation? The grief is fine, full, perfect that I taste, and violenteth in a sense as strong as that which causeth it. How can I moderate it? I just, I just love that. Go, girl. Yeah. All right, then. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. I got six six packs in a pink Cadillac, $10,000 in a sack in the bag. It costs 35 I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a wheel to buy. Tell me you're recording. I came in right after that. I am recording now. I mean, you can do it again, but it... That's the title of my sex tape. (laughs) God, I'm happy we're doing this. Perfect.